Good morning. I'll let you into a deep and dark and never revealed before secret. I'm not Mark Thompson. <laughs> uh, Mark uh, intended preaching this morning, but he's come down with a severe migraine, so I assume Doctrine 1 won't be on this morning. And uh, just before chapel, he asked if I could preach. Uh, what I've decided to preach on this morning is an evangelistic sermon that I gave on Good Friday. And the reason why I want to do it today is that we are in danger of thinking that we can move beyond the great story of the gospel. And we must not do that because what drives us must be what God has done for us and you can never hear that too many times, can you? So let's pray as we start. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we do pray for Mark that you'd give him speedy recovery from this migraine that he has. And Heavenly Father, just as every morning your blessings are new to us and your promises vivid and alive every morning, please let us take this word which we know so well and dwell again, yet again, on how very good you are and that our only hope is in you. Amen. I remember seeing a photo on the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald a number of years ago. It was of children playing soccer. You might ask why I was on the front page. Because it was a pretty city called Sarajevo. It was May 1995 and in that most beautiful of cities there had been a war and a siege for almost four years. In Sarajevo, there were four years of starvation, 1,400 days of bombings, months of infectious diseases. But what made the photo shocking, though, was that against the background and the backdrop of ruined, bombed-out buildings, children were playing soccer. And some of those children didn't have arms. In fact, some of them had amputated legs as well, and they had tattered clothes and lots of wounds, but they played soccer. It was such a terrible state that they were all in, but the children didn't even seem to notice it. It's a shattered and broken city, a shattered and broken world, and they didn't even realise it. I had sympathy for those children and for their lack of awareness, but then I realised that me and our world and every one of us is in the same situation, in fact an even more dangerous situation than they were in, because our predicament concerns our eternal state, the place of your soul, and we don't see the danger of it, nor do we delight in the solution. And so that's why I want to look at the events that occurred at the first Good Friday with you this morning. Look at the death of Jesus, that gruesome death that occurred so long ago, probably 1986 years ago, but whose death continues to be our only, our only hope in life. We get a hint of how important Jesus' death was by the couple of words recorded for us of the Roman centurion. He's a centurion, he's a soldier, a, a soldier who through his ability is elevated to the rank of commanding a hundred men. A centurion whose name we don't even know certainly would have had no love for the Jews that he had to keep under control. 
he would have had no love for the Jews nor of their God. But when he saw the death of Jesus, he declared, truly this was the Son of God. And I want to ask the question, what brought him to that conclusion? Because if his conclusion is correct, what does that mean for each one of us? That's what I want to explore uh, with you this morning as we recall these events together. Now, we all know the story intimately. It's the story of Jesus, Jesus who was miraculously born to a virgin in a tiny village, but a village that was promised by God to be the place that the light of truth might go out to the world, promised by God hundreds of years before. And in the last three years of his life, he did jaw-droppingly amazing things, such that he would have been the talk of every group. He knew the hearts of people. He disclosed the truth about God. He could answer and make quiet every knowledgeable person. He was afraid of no one. He healed the sick with a word. He raised the dead. He never told lies. He was full of compassion. Imagine having such a person as our Premier or as our Prime Minister. And for all that, he now stands condemned to a cruel and completely undeserved death on trumped-up charges without a just trial. I'm going to read the story to you from Matthew chapter 27. And as I read it, think about the emotions that are going on for the people round about and for you as these events unfold. Listen to how people respond to Jesus and can you work out why they respond like they do? So it's Matthew chapter 27, verse uh, verse 27 to verse 54. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and they gathered the whole company of soldiers round him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spat on him and they took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they'd mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him and then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon And they forced him to carry the cross. They came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, but it was mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus the king of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. 
if he wants him, if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, "Uh, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of their tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those who were with him, who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and they exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. This week, some of you will have been following the story of Jock Palfreyman. Uh, Jock, through a series of uh, different relationships, is known to us. Uh, Eleven years ago, he sought to protect a helpless man in Sophia. And in that, another young law student was killed and he has spent all these last years in prison. He was released during the week and the man who was killed, his father, was still so angry that he has petitioned that he never be let uh, let free again. This freak who is an Australian, he was called. How dare he ever be freed? And my emotion at that point is let the man go. He was actually trying to do a right thing. This is unjust. They want to keep him in prison for for the rest of his life. I was appalled at their viciousness and their vindictiveness. But having read this, were you surprised at the viciousness and the meanness of everyone who is around Jesus? He didn't deserve anything that occurred to him, that happened to him. But what happened is so human and we see it every day because as human beings, when you see an outsider, someone who's not from your group, if you see them in a weak state, what happens is we turn against them. I suspect one of the reasons we do it is to enhance our place in our group and that's exactly what they did to Jesus. So let's have a look at this mocked week one. The events open with Jesus being sentenced to crucifixion crucifixion that, as you know, is the most horrific, slow and painful way of killing a person that has ever been invented. It must have been terrible for Jesus on that Thursday night as the events began to know the fate that was awaiting him. And in that traumatic state, the soldiers strip him. Nakedness. Nakedness is such a humiliating thing. Imagine being naked. But even that isn't enough. They make fun of him in his nakedness. They put a robe on him to resemble a king's clothing. They give him a crown like a king, but made of thorns so it cuts his forehead and a reed like the staff of authority. But they use that reed to beat him up 
and then they laugh at him and spit on him. What a terrible thing. And then the scene moves from the governor's headquarters to outside the city where the crucifixion takes place. Simon of Cyrene has to carry his cross, probably because Jesus is too weak. They take him to the place called Golgotha, which fittingly is the place of the skull. They are little facts that tell us that these events are real because Simon is unknown to us apart from this. Golgotha is not even a known landmark. I think you had to be there in order to note these things down. And at Golgotha, in all of Jesus' agony, no human compassion is shown to him. In his thirst they give him wine, but it's wine laced with bitter material to make it undrinkable, so he has to spit it out. And they laugh at him even more as he does that, not once but twice. And so they crucify him almost naked. And the mockery continues with the sign over his head, this is the king of the Jews. It is so laughable for a king, unclothed, dying this humiliating death. And the people watching, absolutely no pity, but they join in laughing at him, not once but continually, right up to the last gasp of his breath. And the priests and the leaders, they then take their chance to mock him. Come down and save yourself. And even the thieves, those being crucified with just hours themselves to live, what do they do spend their last minutes doing? Mocking Jesus. An innocent, frail, weak man, subject to such degradation, if that is the case, what is it that could make the centurion declare truly this was the Son of God? He was able to declare that because there is more to this story than just the emotional story that I've rehearsed to you. Did you pick it up that there are so many hints here that Jesus is not just a weak, mocked victim? Did you notice at the governor's headquarters there is a whole battalion gathered, probably about 500 soldiers? Why do you need 500 armed men to defend against a single man sentenced to death? They must have been very scared of him. And even as Jesus is hanging on the cross, unable to do anything but hang there, breathing his last, the guards were there to keep watch over him. They must have been very worried. Perhaps there was a greater power operating. Mock him as much as they like, even in this humiliated state. Maybe they were terrified that Jesus actually is the King of the Jews. But then, then, the whole creation has had enough. It screams out and responds to what's happening about midday, darkness for about three hours is over the whole earth as Jesus breathes his last. And then the temple curtain that separated humans from God is ripped apart from top to bottom. And then the earthquake, so powerful that the rocks shook, and dead people buried in caves through the cracking rocks come back to life and appear to many people. 
This is inexplicable and world-shattering. There's no human, no normal explanation for it. And it is true. All it would have taken to discredit Christianity was to say, I was there in Jerusalem and these things did not happen. But no one did. This is a factual account. And the centurion saw all of this. And so he proclaimed the only thing that made sense of what was occurring. Truly this was the Son of God. So we've seen the mocked week one. We've seen the creation respond to what's occurred to this mocked week one, informing us that there is more, much more to Jesus than first seems. And now let's look a little bit more deeply at these events as we get a glimpse of what it means and what it could mean for us who live in this shattered world. When you look at the mocked weak Jesus, it would be easy to think of him merely as a victim of injustice, like Jock Paul Freeman was. But there is more to the story than that. It would be normal to have an emotional connection of sympathy for what has happened to him. But that sympathy would only last for a moment. It wouldn't change your eternal destiny. But there is still more to say. Because Jesus is not merely a helpless victim of unjust events. As he was being arrested just hours before these events, Jesus says, Do you not think that I can appeal to my Father and he will send me more than 12 legions of angels? He could have walked away from these events that led to this horrible death at any time, but he didn't. And if he was the Son of God, as the centurion realised, why didn't God step in to save him? In fact, all that occurred to Jesus had been accurately predicted over hundreds and hundreds of years. The dividing of his clothes, being betrayed by a friend, the wine turned bitter, the mocking of everyone. Why didn't Jesus do something? Why didn't God step in to prevent this injustice if God is there and if Jesus is the King of the Jews? Why? Two words, five letters, for me or six letters, for you. Everyone was abusing and mocking him, and yet he continued to endure it, for me, for you. What what does for me mean? These events give us a little bit of a glimpse of what it means. Jesus cries out, Eli, Eli, Labak Samachthani, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is a terrible cry of despair, but it's much more than that. It's the opening words, as you know, of the song of the hymn of Psalm 22 from a thousand years before Jesus. The writer of the song cries out in distress that he is overtaken by evil people. They mock with the very words that were hurled at Jesus. He trusts the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. They cast lots for his garments. But Psalm 22 ends with the author declaring that through this abused one, the whole earth will be blessed. The whole earth blessed so that it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations 
they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. You see, the psalm is promising that from this one man going through this unjust, unjust murder, blessings will flow out not just to many but for generations and generations to come and we are those generations to come. That's why he does it for us, for me, for you. You just have to read on in your Bible and see that every human, every human is weighed down with disobedience to God. We are all under God's judgment. But Jesus takes that for us and lifts us out of that judgment to God. And so again you get the glimpses of what this means from what happened on that first Good Friday as the creation shakes. The temple curtain is ripped apart. That's the symbol of distance, of course, between God and man, needed because God is pure and perfect and we are most certainly not that. And how could you possibly continue as a sinful person to exist near a good and perfect God? Well, you need a barrier, you need a safe distance. But now as the temple curtain is torn in two, in my place condemned Jesus stood So there is no wall, there is no barrier, there is no safe distance needed. God and humans are in restored relationship. And then probably the weirdest of the things here in this chapter, dead bodies walking around. Not forever, just for a short time. But just this short time is a glimpse that death has been overturned because the one thing that we all face is death and no skill or wealth or ignoring can overcome it. It stands over all of us. But this little glimpse is that in Jesus' death, death has lost its power. Sure, we will die, but we will not stay dead. A day is coming when the dead will rise to eternal life, and oh, what a day that will be. We need not fear death. One thing is certain, the world has been permanently changed by these Easter events. So what do we do? What do we do in 2019 as we glimpse these events that occurred 1986 years ago? What does it mean? In 1347, the Black Death, or as it's sometimes called the Plague, swept across the world. It started in China, made its way west, killing between 30 and 60% of the population as it spread. That is half the world killed by the Black Death. Nothing like this had ever been seen before. It was so scary that families left their loved ones to die. Even parents turned their back on their screaming children and left them with nothing to comfort them as they were screaming in their agony. And I've got to say, I can understand doing that because I don't for a moment think I would have been any more noble than that. To get, in, to get involved in any way gave you a one in two chance of dying a horrible death and dying it very soon and really achieving no lasting benefit for anyone. The world was in a desperately dangerous situation then and it still is despite there being no black death. 
it was a shattered world. No one could do anything to solve the problem. Hope was beyond reach. We live in such a shattered world, one where we mock the weak, one where we have no answer to death, one where there is no meaning to life, where people are suiciding because there's no reason to keep living. That is our world. But the plague is also the exact opposite to what we see in Jesus. When the plague arrived, there was nothing but death in it. Even family affection evaporated. But Jesus comes not with death but to offer life and life to the full. He offers a remade world where our guilt is removed and placed on him, where there is free access to God, where there is eternal life, just by turning to and trusting him. But our world does to Jesus what they did in the plague. They turn their back on everything in the plague because they feared the death it brought. The one hope we have is Jesus who brings life. And what does our world do? Turn its back on him and mock him. How foolish. In Jesus and only in Jesus is our broken, shattered, war-torn world set right. The problem is, of course, you can't see it immediately. Just like a vaccine takes time to be effective, so what Jesus does takes time to see. So my plea to us today is not to turn your back on Jesus like they turn their back on those under the plague. I don't think you're in danger of that, but some of you may be, so hear it. But don't also get so besotted by other things that we forget how precious what Jesus is and what he has done for us. Sure, there are other things that rightly consume our minds, our families, our studies, our ministries, all of those things. But the thing that makes it worthwhile, that gives it shape, that gives your heart reason to sing and refreshes the soul and makes you able to make those right decisions is because the one who looks so weak and mocked truly is the Son of God who came and gave himself for me, for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words, words that are so common to us and a story that is so well known to us. Please spare us from thinking that we move beyond these things as we talk with other people, as we minister the gospel. Please spare us from moving beyond them and thinking that other things are more important than this for us. For Christ's sake and for the salvation of your people, we pray it. Amen.